0: Welcome to the 16th episode of the Neutral champion podcast. Now, vitamin D is receiving a lot of attention both from the research fraternity and the industry, as there have been studies showing how vitamin D could play an important role in affecting the severity of COVID-19 infections. In this podcast, we will hear from Professor Ray Chenil, the Principal Research Fellow at the QIMR Berhofer Medical Research Institute, based in Queensland, Australia. Prof. Neal has been studying the uses and the clinical impacts of vitamin D supplementation for the past decade. Also specialising in pancreatic cancer research, she has been with the Research Institute for the past 14 years, after a two-year fellowship with the University of Oxford. Hi Prof. Neil, concerning vitamin D, what exactly did the different clinical results show? And how do you think we can administer vitamin D supplementation in the clinical settings, especially in light of the pandemic? Look,
1: I think there's no doubt at all that vitamin D has an important role in our immune system. It appears to both help us fight off infections, but also it dampens down the overreaction of the immune system, which is what often causes people to become very sick. It's actually not the infection itself, but it's our immune response to the infection is often what causes people to get very sick. And vitamin D appears to play a role in helping to stop that overreaction of the immune system. So I think that there's no doubt that vitamin D is very important. The tricky bit is working out how much we need to optimize our immune health. And we still don't yet know whether or not giving people a vitamin D supplement Um, will help them to fight off COVID, for example. There have been a couple of early studies that are really promising, suggesting that when people are admitted to hospital with COVID, if they're given a very big dose of vitamin D, they might do better than people who aren't given a big dose of vitamin D. But we don't yet have big um, gold standard randomised controlled trials to, to help us know whether or not that is a particularly useful treatment. But I have to say that if I had a patient who was vitamin D deficient, I would absolutely be treating that. Whether or not we should be giving huge doses of vitamin D is another question entirely, but there's no doubt that, that um, we should not be allowing our patients to be vitamin D deficient. Okay, so what
0: is considered a huge dose of vitamin D?
1: Yeah, so that's the million dollar question really, isn't it? Um so the definition of vitamin D deficiency is very, very variable around the world. Um, some people think that less than about 30 nanomoles per litre, which is the measure we use here in Australia, um, is is enough to keep you healthy, whereas there are other organisations and scientists around the world who say that we should be aiming to get over 75 or 100 nanomoles per litre. So that's a very wide range of what people think we should have in our bloodstream and for a variety of reasons I don't believe that that we yet know the answer to that how much we should have but in terms of big doses that are being given sometimes people are being given 100,000 or 200,000 international units as a single dose and that's a very big dose to give um, and it may well be appropriate um, but I don't think we have the really solid data yet to know in people who are very sick with something like COVID, whether or not that truly is a useful therapeutic approach. I would love to see us treat people who are deficient, but then also (laughs) over and above that, do a trial of these very big, a proper trial of these very big megadoses to see if they can help
0: I see. Then in that case, right, is it advisable um, for, you know, maybe doctors to start um, administering huge doses of vitamin D at this stage as part of a trial and error uh, kind of approach to treat COVID patients?
1: Look, I think that this sort of approach should be tested in a hospital setting with very sick patients. I don't think that this is something that we should be advising people to do to avoid getting COVID-19 at all. Um, I think what our doctors need to be advising people do, to do as far as um, if, if we believe the data that suggests that low vitamin D levels increase your risk of getting COVID-19 in the first place, um, I think what we should be advising people to do is to avoid vitamin D deficiency, which we were doing anyway to avoid problems with our bones. We know that vitamin D is very important for our bones. And so we should always have been trying to avoid vitamin D deficiency, but it's arguably more important in the time of a pandemic to encourage people to make sure that they're not vitamin D deficient. And we can do that in one of two ways. Obviously we can advise people to get um, more sun exposure or we can tell people to take a supplement. And in some parts of the world, getting more sun exposure, particularly this time of the year is very difficult. So, you know, Northern Europe and, and, you know, Northern America, um, very difficult to get enough sun exposure at this time of the year. So I do advise my friends and colleagues who live in those parts of the world to take a vitamin D supplement. But if you're in an environment like I live in um, or, you know, many parts of, of Asia, it's very easy to get enough sun. And so I think we can be advising people To get some careful sun exposure, obviously with my skin type living in Queensland, in Australia, I'm at high risk of skin cancer as well. So we need to balance that out. But there is some evidence that the sun may have benefits for the immune system independently of vitamin D production. So I think we shouldn't discount the potential importance of of sun exposure to optimise our vitamin D and potentially getting some of the other benefits of the sun at the same time.
0: Okay, and as for the clinical trials, right, uh, you mentioned that in order to find out more to provide solid evidence on the role of vitamin D in immune response and respiratory health, right, uh, we require some gold standard kind of trials. Um, Is that, what what sort of protocol will you you recommend?
1: Look, so I think that in in people who are very sick and hospitalised, it would be, treat everybody with a minimum amount of vitamin D to make sure that we get them above the level of deficiency. So I think that that would be the first thing, is to avoid everybody being anybody being below 50 nanomoles per litre. But then once we'd got everyone to that level, I would do a randomised controlled trial where I would randomly assign some people to receive a megadose of vitamin D and other people to receive a placebo um, megadose and, and see if the people who were given the mega dose had improved outcomes compared to the people who were given placebo. But that's assuming nobody's vitamin D deficient in the first place. So I think that that's the key thing. I don't think it would be ethical to take someone who has vitamin D deficiency and give them a placebo. So the first thing we need to do is treat deficiency. And once we've treated the actual deficiency, we can then look at whether or not a mega dose actually has got any benefit. But I do think we need to be cautious about these megadoses. It may have harms, and that's why I think it's important that we're doing this in people who are actually quite sick where the potential benefit outweighs the potential harm.
0: As for the side effects, right, what could be some of of them if um, a person were to overdose on vitamin D?
1: Yes, so these big megadoses have been shown in the past. Well, obviously we know that if it's too big a dose, it can actually cause your calcium to become too high. In a hospital situation that can be effectively monitored to make sure that the calcium is being managed appropriately. Um, but in, in other studies outside hospital settings, the big megadoses have been shown to increase the risk of falling. So if you have a patient who is ambulatory, who is still able to walk around and you give them a big mega dose of vitamin D, you might actually put them at risk of particularly an elderly person you might actually put them at risk of having a nasty fall and that in itself can have really bad consequences if they fracture a hip or something like that. So the the two main side effects we know are hypercalcemia, and falling are the big risks of those mega doses.
0: You recently wrapped up this um, study, uh, vitamin D on elderly population and whether it reduced the risk of uh, respiratory infection. So um, may I know uh, why did you uh, embark on this research? So the D-Health trial
1: um, was the big vitamin D trial. Um, We enrolled 21,000 people into the trial and actually, respiratory tract infection was not our primary outcome. The main thing we wanted to do was to see if giving the general population in Australia a vitamin D tablet versus a placebo, if that reduced their risk of dying or their rate of dying. So if it, if it enabled people to live a bit longer. So mortality was our primary outcome. And we're working on the analysis of that at the moment. And we hope to release those results fairly soon. But the main reason for doing the trial was because there's lots and lots of data suggesting that people who have low vitamin D are at increased risk of a number of adverse health outcomes, such as cancer, heart disease, um, and lots of other things that are arguably less important than those for for living a nice long life but are important for our quality of life, like pain, mood, tiredness, Um, lots of other outcomes like that. And so we wanted to say, well, if we were to supplement the whole elderly Australian population by just telling everyone to take a supplement or giving everybody um, more vitamin D in the food, would we actually improve health outcomes? Because the, the studies that show that people with low vitamin D are at increased risk of these things, it might be that vitamin D is just a marker of ill health. So if you imagine that if people are not going outside and being physically active, they're more likely to have low vitamin D, but those people are also more likely to have heart disease. So we don't know if vitamin D is causing the heart disease or if it's just a marker of other things. So we really need big trials like D-Health to help us answer that question. So that's why we embarked on the D-Health trial. So we've got lots and lots of different um, outcomes to analyze. So we've published our results on respiratory tract infection. We're working on mortality at the moment. We've got someone working on whether or not taking a vitamin D tablet reduces bodily pain and depression, erectile dysfunction, incontinence. So we've got lots of people working on lots of different aspects of the data at the moment.
0: Wow. So it is expected that um, more papers will be coming out.
1: Yes, many more papers that we're working on at the moment. We have so many health outcomes ourselves from um, the D-Health trial. So we will be very soon, we'll be starting to work on analysing our cancer data to look at whether or not um, giving people vitamin D versus placebo reduce the risk of cancer. And we're just starting to also work on um, data on diabetes um, and cardiovascular disease. So we've got so much data ourselves on many, many, many different health outcomes The people in D-Health took vitamin D for five years. Uh So it's a very long trial. Um, So we've got lots of data that's going to keep us very busy for the next two or three years, I think.
0: Speaking of cancer, right, you also specialize in the research of pancreatic cancer. I'm wondering, um, is there any overlap between uh, the research in um, pancreatic cancer and vitamin D?
1: Not really, but I guess what got me particularly interested in in this issue was that I had been doing skin cancer research for quite a long time and then I started doing pancreatic cancer research and that's what made me start to go, well, the sun is not all bad because the sun makes vitamin D which may have benefits for cancer but obviously the sun also causes skin cancer and so it was really looking at um, benefits versus harms of sun exposure in relation to, to vitamin D. So my pancreatic cancer and my skin cancer research is really got what got me interested in vitamin D in the first place and made me realise that we needed a lot more information about vitamin D and how to, um, how to best get vitamin D um, to avoid you know, skin cancer, but at the same time, make sure that we had enough to ensure that we were healthy in terms of our bones and our cancer and our immune function and all sorts of other things as well.
0: Yeah, how long have you been uh, studying the, the role and effects of vitamin D? So since about 2010, really, um, that was oh,
1: even maybe a little bit earlier with some observational studies where we where we compared the the rate of pancreatic cancer in different latitudes across Australia. So I really got interested in it, you know, over a decade ago now. But the time where I really decided that we needed to do an actual randomised control trial was in about 2010. And we did a pilot study in 644 Australians really to say, could we do a very big trial? Because obviously trialling 21,000 people, it's the largest medication trial ever done in Australia. And it was a very big undertaking. And so we needed to make sure that we could do it. So we did a pilot trial um, from 2010 or so onwards um, and we used those data to look at the effect of vitamin D supplementation on antibiotic use and on some sort of
0: inflammatory markers so throughout the, the last decade of, of experience researching vitamin D right uh, what are some of the other key health effects that's, that, that's um, proven with vitamin D supplementation
1: look to be honest there are very few health effects that are completely proven so we know that vitamin D deficiency causes rickets in children and the equivalent to that in adults is osteomalacia, soft bones. Um, we are pretty sure that being vitamin D deficient increases the risk of falling. Um, so it has important effects on our musculoskeletal system. But beyond that, I don't believe that most other health effects are completely proven More importantly, I think that the the really big question is how much vitamin D we need. Because until we answer that question, we don't know what to advise people about supplementation or about how much to aim for in their bloodstream, which we can get through sun exposure, but we don't know how much sun exposure to recommend because we don't know how much we need. And one of the key reasons that we don't know the answer to that question is because historically the measurement of vitamin D levels in our blood has been quite inaccurate. So when we don't have an accurate measure of what's in the blood and the researchers have all used a different way of measuring what's in our bloodstream, when we try and compare the data across different studies, um, we can't really do that effectively. So moving forward, we now have much better ways of measuring vitamin D We need to make sure that all our research studies are using these much better measures and that we're using modern statistical analysis techniques to really try and understand whether or not the link between vitamin D and health is a causal link. So whether or not it's um, vitamin D causing ill health or whether or not it's just a marker of ill health or or poor lifestyle. So we need to use some much more modern statistical analytical techniques combined with much better measures of the amount of vitamin D in the bloodstream to really answer the question about the health outcomes that are related to vitamin D and how much we need in our bloodstream. Is it difficult to come up with a standardised way? Yeah, it has been quite difficult in the past to come up with a standardised High throughput measure, because that's the other thing. If you need to measure this in a lot of people, then you need it to be a fairly straightforward, inexpensive laboratory test. So it has been difficult. So one of the really great advances in vitamin D research over the last couple of decades has been um, the vitamin D standardization program run by the National Institutes of Health in the United States, which has really come a long way towards standardizing our measurements of vitamin D in the bloodstream. The problem is that in clinical practice and in some research environments, the older, less accurate laboratory tests are still being used. So we need to make sure that we really move forward with making sure the newer more accurate tests are being used and the standardized tests are being used routinely in both research
0: and in clinical practice. Yeah, how long have you been with this uh, QIMR?
1: Oh, way too long. Um, (laughs) I, I did my PhD here at QIMR, but then I spent some time living in England, living and working in England, and I came back to QIMR in 2007. So I've been here most recently since 2007, so... Fourteen years, but I started my PhD here in the oh, nineteen nineties, and then I left to go and work other places, and I came back again.
0: What led you to England? Um,
1: really, to I I I went twice. I went once um, to work in Cambridge, um, just to really experience research in a different environment, and then I got government funding, Australian government funding. Um, in 2003 to go and work in Oxford for two years to develop my research skills over in Oxford for two years then. So it was really the government supporting me to go and spend time living in England, which was really fantastic.
0: Well, all these are really very prestigious institutions. So um, what do you think are some of the key takeaways that you have while spending your time there?
1: Uh, Look, I think that that it's really fantastic for people to spend time in other places in other parts of the world because you learn so much from the different ways that people do things and also cultural differences as well. People think of Australia and England as being very similar but there are cultural differences and I think it helps us get a broader understanding of health issues around the world. So obviously living in Australia the the balance of the risks of vitamin D deficiency versus skin cancer are very different here in England where we need to where the issues are quite different. And I um, when I went over in 2003, I had two little girls at the time. So experiencing what it was like to, ha- to have children in that environment also opened my eyes to other ways of doing things around the world, which was fantastic.
0: Well, it's really not easy to bring your two girls along with you then you need to juggle work and family life. How, how do you do that?
1: Oh, very lucky. I have a very um, supportive husband, and so we work together very effectively when our girls were little. Um, But I also was very lucky that I was able to have a nanny who helped out as well. So I used to start work very early in the morning um, so that I could be home um, in the not too late afternoon. Um, And my husband would start later and come home later. And then we had a nanny who also helped us out, which was fantastic.
0: What do you think are the key differences when it comes to the um, research concerning vitamin D in England and in Australia?
1: Here in Australia, our, our really big issue is how we advise people to avoid the risk of skin cancer um, but also avoid being vitamin D deficient. So here, just in walking outside my door, I get quite a lot of sun exposure. Um, so for me, it's that incidental daily sun exposure and how do, I, how do I avoid getting skin cancer? But if I stay away from the sun the whole time, if I arrive in my office at seven in the morning and I leave at six at night, um, then I'm at risk of vitamin D deficiency. So balancing that is really difficult. In England, actually um sun exposure for skin cancer routinely is not such a problem what increases the risk of skin cancer there is almost certainly people going on sunny holidays to spain and lying in the sun and getting really badly sunburnt so as opposed to it being an everyday problem there it's getting sunburnt problem but their much bigger issue is how to avoid being vitamin d deficient they have a high prevalence of vitamin d deficiency and so for them it's the issue of well do we do we really advise people to try and get out in the sunshine or should we just be recommending routine supplementation um so that the balance of the risks and benefits of sun exposure and and the sort of patterns of sun exposure are quite different in England versus Australia and my other really big focus that I think we need to know the answer to particularly in an environment like here in Australia and in other some other parts of the world I really want to know whether or not applying high SPF sunscreen routinely actually increases people's risk of being vitamin D deficient. Because our best way of making vitamin D is actually not to take a supplement. It's it's to use our body's natural um, processes to make vitamin D. That's my preference, is to get it naturally. Um, But in avoiding skin cancer, we also advise people to use sunscreen regularly And there have been two sunscreen trials that have been done that showed that regular sunscreen application did not increase the risk of vitamin D deficiency. But those trials both used sunscreens with quite low protection factors. So the protection factors in those sunscreens was both about an SPF 15. And these days we recommend that people are using sunscreens with an SPF 50 or more. Sometimes those sunscreens have got an SPF 60 or 70. And we don't know if regular application of those sunscreens will actually increase people's risk of being vitamin D deficiency. So that's the other question that I think is really important to answer and also to do some modelling about how much time we need to spend in the sun to avoid being vitamin D deficient. So that's the other focus of my research.